Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Thanks for being here. Thanks to my son Jonas for the Advent Beats. You are listening to the fourth um, installment in my short series on Advent. I wanted to and have been just reading directly the Advent texts that uh, come from the Gospels, particularly from the Gospel of Matthew. I felt a kind of pull, an urge, a nudge, the muse whispered something, hey, pay attention here, pay attention to ancient, the ancient wisdom and the ancient cycle of Advent, which we have been celebrating in, a, in various forms for at least 1,500 years. For 1,500 years, we've been turning our attention this time of year, the darkest time of year, to these little passages. And um, and that's what I want to do again today. And if you've been listening, I tried to just say a little bit about the story that's being told, a tiny bit of context, and I try to focus on the, symbol, the symbolic, the symbol, or the symbols that appear in the text, and just say a few brief things. What am I hearing? What am I thinking? What's stirring? And uh, that's the beauty of sacred literature and sacred texts, we, we bring the fullness of who we are in the 21st century, um, our scientific, modern, postmodern, uh, psychologically informed, uh, spiritually, uh, typically more open uh, point of view to the text. And that's totally allowed and fine. And then at the same time, we offer ourselves up to the ancient, the mythic, the mystical, the symbolic, the deeper currents that out of which these texts were born and um, maybe you could even say that the, the texts themselves are trying to pull us into the deep stream. And I think that's why Jesus is always saying after he speaks or sometimes after he quotes from the Torah from Isaiah something, he says, uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. She who has ears to hear, let her hear. This is the idea that um, uh, most of the time we walk around with our uh, ears plugged. There's a famous line in, in, in the book of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah says, morning by morning, he wakes me up. He opens up my ears. That's the nice NIV translation. But it actually says he carves out my ears. It's a it's a um, an image rooted in in the tecton, the stonemason, the hard laborious work of carving out stone with iron tools. That's more what we're like a lot of the time. We get locked in to our point of view and our way of being and our fears and anxieties and. Uh, small self and opinions and the way we divide the world up between the good and the bad, between the evil and the righteous, um, between between my, my family members who don't have it together and I who have it together, um, or whatever. Um, yeah, and so we need to morning by morning be be woken up by something by the divine, the mystery, by nature, 
as if our ears are full of stones. And, and that's, that's why I like to turn my attention to, to the ancient wisdom here. And what I'm going to do in a minute is read the passage here. And again, just encourage you, what do you hear? What do you think? What stirs? What bothers you? What's alluring? Um, what subtle seeds are already planted in the depths of your being that this text is watering in some way? And, uh, yeah, and what would it look like this time of year to turn our attention to these words? And, and I'm making this podcast on the uh, winter solstice. And it must be said that there's a deep wisdom that the ancient church fathers and mothers had when they sat down to organize the calendar year. That's probably not really what it what happened. They didn't sit down and probably have a committee, but um, they simply were in more harmonious relationship with the cycles and the seasons and the sun and the moon and the stars and the constellations and the signs of the zodiac, and this was both science, even though science had not been born yet, science or nature, and the landscape through which they came to understand the complexities of being human, both of those things. And there's real, real ancient wisdom to put the Advent story during the darkest time of year. We have actually no idea from a historical point of view when Jesus was born. December 25th was the birth day of Mithra. I'm, I'm getting into context, which I'm, I promise not to do too much of. But the, the, birth, pay, the birth of the f- very well-known goddess Mithra, and, um, which was super popular in the Roman Empire. And Constantine, whose father was a follower of Mithra, seemed to have chosen December 25 to sort of use uh, what was already in the culture to uh, sanction Christianity, you could say. But we have no idea what time of year Jesus was born. And you could say, historically, in my opinion, it doesn't matter. But it does matter just in the sense of when do we turn our attention to these things? And the church fathers and mothers said, during the darkest time of year. A light is dawning in the darkest time of year. And uh, God, what a year to be reminded of this image and of the tension between light and dark and the turning of the seasons and the turning of the year in our calendar, in the Western calendar. Um, so I'm going to say a little bit about the solstice at the end here. So um, if you've been listening so far, you've probably noticed that the texts have something in common, and what they have in common is preparation. The the all of the texts are anticipating and preparing for something, for the emergence, the dawning, the evolution of something, the Messiah, the coming one, um, the one who's going to save, the one um, who's going to turn uh, the hearts of people back toward the things of mystery, back toward the divine. And maybe it's, it's worth saying that from an archetypal point of view, preparation is really important. Uh, cleaning the lens is really important. What I've been arguing for for a long time 
what I call a searching spiritual inventory. That's what I, I think 2020 is offering us collectively and individually, a searching spiritual inventory, which is a kind of preparation. Um, you know, there's this terrible line in the book of Proverbs, as a, as a dog returns to its vomit. You know, that's what most of us are like a lot of the time. We tend to repeat the same patterns locked inside the same consciousness and um, repeat the same uh, so-called solutions to solve our problems, which don't seem to do anything as a dog returns to its vomit. And so uh, a searching spiritual inventory saying, actually, I don't know. I I ought to do some self-examination here. And, And what if I dropped my projects and programs and, and, allowed myself to be worked by the mystery of my own life um, as a season of preparation. You know, the image for that is often the desert, you know, an, an emptying. And of course, we've been looking at John the Baptist out in the desert with just, you know, a change of clothes. Well, I said a change in it. He just says he wore camel's clothing. Just one set of clothes and 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 long hair and a beard and living off the, the wild, um, preparing, preparing and, and anticipating what might be born in the world. And we're at that kind of place. And in a way, it's, um, it's uncertain what is to be born. You know, like the image of the Sphinx at the end of the Eighth poem, what slouches toward Bethlehem to be born? And he doesn't answer the question. We're not exactly sure. So preparation is, isn't really like, well, I'm going to wait it out because definitely good things are coming. It's more, I'm going to wait it out and I'm going to do some self-examination and I'm going to prepare and I'm going to hope and I'm going to anticipate and I'm going to be alert enough. That, that was the initial text we read on week one. Stay awake, stay alert. You don't know the day or the hour when just a little light is to be born. Just enough light comes through the cracks, you could say. To quote some Leonard Cohen here. Um, yeah, and, and, and maybe just one more thing here. In, uh, I'm reading Bill Plotkin's new book, which is coming out in January, which you should definitely buy. Um, the journey of soul initiation, and it's to me it's an amazing book. And of course, I'm in the guide trading program and at Animus, uh, started by by Bill Plotkin. So I've been deep inside this work for a long time. And um, in the in in what he calls as the calls the five phases of the descent to soul, the first can be called preparation. It can't be bypassed or skipped. Um, what do I know about myself and what do I not know about myself? What do I know about the world and what do I not know about the world? And what do I need to do to turn my attention toward things of ultimate meaning? And now he's using preparation in a very specific way. Read the book. And, and, and by the way, um, Bill's going to be on this podcast uh, coming up here real soon on the release of his book. So I'm super excited about that. And we'll have a whole conversation about about that book. So so stay tuned. Um, 
but I'm just I'm situating the the necessity of preparation within the archetypal pattern of descent to soul, um, or you could you could even say within the archetypal pattern of the hero's journey or something like that. Those aren't quite the same things, um, at least according to Plotkin, but um, they share similar patterns. Or you could say a life connected to the divine and to God. It's there is a time of get ready, and and we're supposed to, in a way, as we as we try to sync up our life to the wisdom of the church calendar, not that you have to, but there's an invitation there, that every year we ought to be doing this. You know, <laughs> The idea that um, we would make a New Year's resolution that sounds very secular, uh, and um, I just did air quotes, but I didn't know what else to call it. I actually think they're, they're, it's important to make some distinctions here, but it's sort of like, you know, I'm going to get fit and you know, all of the cliches that come along with it. Well, it's much older than that, that if the season is going to turn over and if it's going to move from light to dark, what do I need to do? What do I need, what do I need to take a look at? So um, I'm emphasizing here that the Advent text, as far as I read them, um, really point the way to preparation. And today's text has a bit of those themes as well. Um, so I want to invite you to have a listen to the text. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. This is Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, the Torah, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and she gave him the name Jesus. So, of course, uh, this being one of the more famous texts from the New Testament and from the story of Jesus. Even if you're not religious or didn't grow up in a kind of religious environment, you've probably heard the story. It's made its way into the Western psyche and into the Western um, collective unconscious. And um, and so, yeah, maybe just a little bit on the, on the story here, then the context, and then I'll dive into some simple stuff. So I don't want to say too much, but I think it's important to... to to acknowledge what Matthew's up to here. He's been sort of building a case that the birth of this Jewish peasant is, um, is part of the, the mysterious anticipatory texts of the prophets that talk about the one who is to come, the Messiah. And you should know that the idea or the concept of the Messiah, as I think I said last week, is was up for debate. Um, Jewish people did not agree on that. 
uh, on, on who or what the Messiah was. It was like all things inside uh, a living and vibrant religion was, was up for um, a conversation and interpretation. So in other words, there was not one text out there that said, hey, by the way, the Messiah is going to do this, this, and this, and, and here's how it's going to come into being, and so forth and so on. They're more illusions and pointers. But Matthew is sort of building a case that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And here, at this point in the narrative, which is near the beginning of his gospel, he just says it directly. This, is the, this story is about the birth of the Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one. And you should know that very directly. It's a king-oriented image. The fact that magi, magicians from the East, bring Jesus um, frankincense and myrrh and gold are, is because of this uh, messianic orientation, meaning the anointing of a king. So what gifts are fit for a king becomes the question. And you should um, um, buy my audiobook on my website, uh, A Grain of Wheat, which I talk in great detail about the imagery here, um, looking at Jesus' entire life uh, symbolically, particularly this, um, uh, or I should say, part of, the, part of the book includes a section on the Magi. So anyway, a little ad for that. Um, but my main point is, from a contextual point of view, Matthew is just coming out and saying it. Hey, in my opinion, this is the Messiah. This is the promised one. And the rest of the book, then, from a Jewish point of view, is laying out the, the particular nature of, of, of what this Messiah was doing and being and bringing. And Matthew says it here um, directly, uh, I think through the voice of the angel, he's going to save his people from their sins. Well, how? And remember, to sin means just to miss the mark. So how will Jesus help people aim more correctly? And Read the entire Gospel of Matthew if you want to find out. You know, Jesus goes up on a mountain just like Moses went up on a mountain. He gives the, gives the Torah, in this case the Sermon on the Mount, sort of outlining this is the way in which we want to reorient our, li- our, our lives, um, to turn from sin or missing the mark and to aim in a better direction. Jesus is interpreting and reinterpreting and sort of uh, embodying this kind of Moses figure. And of course, Jesus is a healer and he's you know, has disciples and has his own movement and, and um, teaches about the kingdom of God and so forth. So I don't want to, um, you know, go into too much detail here. But um, my main point was Matthew is saying it directly. This is, this is the one that we've been talking about. Um, and maybe one other thing I think that's worth noting that's kind of just obvious that if you ask, well, what's the story? The story is two unknown teenagers, we can assume, and, um, bring the Messiah into the world. <laughs> Joseph, son of David, so he's from the house and line of David. That's all we know about him. It's not, not really a major character in the rest of the Gospels. And Mary, who, who is um, a virgin, has not been married before. I'll talk more about that word in a second. Um, but young people, I mean, it's, it's very likely if this is following any kind of ordinary course, Mary is a teenager. So it's important that, to note that Matthew is saying this directly. He doesn't need to. There are only two Gospels of the four that have any information about the birth of Jesus. It's not needed. 
It's not like if we didn't have the Christmas story, there wouldn't be the story of Jesus. No, we just wouldn't have that element. In fact, we don't find Jesus talking about his own birth even one time. Hey, guys, let me tell you a great story. You know, my mom and my dad. No, we nothing. It's not important to him as far as we know. But it was important several generations later. And part of that is because um, it was common and typical to include birth narratives of famous people. Um, and definitely birth narratives of, of, of God-like beings. That's all of Greek culture. The birth of the gods is a major storyline. So it's like, okay, um, the story felt incomplete. And so these writers started asking and digging around and trying to find out some information and, and whatever. So um, here's the question. If you were God, let's just role play, if you were God, and you wanted to um, enter into the human story again in a very unique way, and I don't even know how you might even think of the word God, but let's just use it kind of loosely here. You're you're God, you're the divine, and um, you are in relationship to all of creation, and you're in relation to the to the human uh, story here, and you're interested in in the evolution of human beings and the evolution of consciousness, and and um, and so you decide, as you have done before, we could say, to to enter humanity, that to to infuse humanity with a little uh, more wisdom and insight. You're going to get involved, and so your big plan is to um, go with teenage parents. That's your big plan. And more than that, teenage parents out of wedlock. That's your big idea. See, it's odd. It's unusual. It doesn't make sense. And that's what makes the story so compelling. And Matthew is just putting it out there. Hey, this is the story. And, um, and the very first thing we learn about this Messiah as he was born, from a contextual point of view, from a storyline point of view, into controversy. Is anyone going to believe this, you might ask? Well, if you're thinking like the Greeks thought, which is, hey, sometimes the gods impregnate people, <laughs> then this might not be such a far-fetched story. The, the idea of a virgin conceiving is not is not unknown in this part of the world. But from a Jewish point of view, you're probably going to say, I don't know, I don't know. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, you know? I mean, that might be what teenagers would say because they don't want to get in trouble. You know, oh, believe me, you know, God does, did this. We didn't have anything to do with it, right? So, yeah, this is, this is the big plan. And it's just interesting that the Messiah here, which comes out of Matthew's mouth, he's the anointed one, slips into the world under controversy and poverty and into an unknown family. That's kind of an amazing story. And it's giving us clues about how the rest of Jesus' life might unfold. And just a bit, a bit um, more on context here. The, it is true, and those of you who are maybe done some historical critical scholarship, that Isaiah, technically speaking, which Matthew quotes from here, a virgin shall conceive, does not say a virgin, it says young woman. Now, Hebrew is a generic language, um, or I should say generic language. In Hebrew... Words that are generic 
can mean a number of things. Like young woman can mean virgin, one who hasn't had sex before, but it can also just mean young woman. It's it's a general term. So that's the beauty of it. That's that's what makes Hebrew such a poetic and interesting language. You you have to bring a certain level of of interpretation to it. After all, Hebrew doesn't even have uh, vowels, so the possibility for interpretation is, um, you know, is is much more prominent than say English, which is a highly specialized and specific kind of language. So. Um, now, is that what Matthew has in mind? Well, we don't know. I think probably he has in mind the what is how it's traditionally interpreted here is that Mary's a virgin. She she's not slept with Joseph. And and how do we know that? How do we know Matthew has that intention? Because he sort of says that directly. Joseph doesn't consummate the marriage until after Jesus is born. So he is actually making that case. Even if Isaiah wasn't exactly making that case, um, or the the possibility for interpreting that it that way is a bit blurry. Um, so that's the first thing. And you might ask, and now we're already sort of sinking into the level of symbol here, what's so important about a virgin shall conceive? Well, this is so infused with sort of archetypal richness to claim that in the innocence of the womb, the divine wind, that's what the Holy Spirit means, is involved, is intimately intermingled with the innocence of the feminine. Now, that is a profound symbol, and, and the story is dabbling in, in this kind of archetypal power. And you could ask then, how does the divine mix itself in the world? Through the feminine, through the flesh and blood, um, innocence of the sacred femininity. So that's um, to just to say a bit about the symbolic layer. Maybe, maybe uh, one more thing here. It's interesting that Jesus' name, Jesus, uh, is really Joshua or Yeshua. It may have been uh, pronounced in Hebrew and Aramaic, but it's just Joshua. Josh is born into the world. Like, hey, Josh is here. So what's going on here? Well, from a contextual point of view, Joshua is the figure that eventually leads the Jewish people out of the wilderness into the promised land. So if you want to know the nature of what Jesus is supposed to do metaphorically and symbolically, it's to lead the people from the desert into the promised land. The question is, what is meant by the promised land? Well, that's Jesus's main concern, what he calls the kingdom of God. He is, in fact, embodying the figure of Joshua. Now, Joshua came with war. Jesus comes with words and healings and um, disciples instead of a tribe. So it's, it has the same, you know, it has 12 disciples and there were 12 tribes. This is kind of the nod to Joshua bit. And um, in any case, he's he's moving out into the, his own Jewish world and eventually the Greek world, announcing the promised land or the kingdom of God, as he calls it. He's embodying the Joshua figure, and that's how he's saving people. Joshua saved people from the wilderness, and Joshua saved people from the Canaanite inhabitants through warfare. Jesus is doing something uh, very different. The nature of the anointed kingship, that is Jesus, looks different than the ordinary role of a warrior king, which is the way to think about Joshua. So, um, 
maybe just uh, a little bit more on um, symbol here, and then I'll kind of let you do your own wonderings and ponderings. So um, I think there's something powerful here to me in the nature of the birth story. And if we take it directly, as I kind of was doing before, what's being born into the world is deeply human and deeply divine. And if we begin to ask, well, then how does this ancient God, Yahweh, mystery, um, how does this God reveal itself in the world? Well, through the deeply human and the divine being in conversation, being mixed, being stirred in the same cauldron. That's how. Which is the opposite of standing on Olympus or standing on Sinai and announcing something. Like, hey, everybody, here's what you need to know. A kind of top-down, pay attention. Why not? You're the divine. Do whatever you want. But the big idea is to slip into humanity in the most ordinary of circumstances. So it's beginning to ask the question from a spiritual and religious point of view, where is the divine dwell? Well, in the human and in the ordinary and in, the, in unlikely teenagers and in out-of-wedlock pregnancies and in um, the pressures of a highly taxed uh, society of just two classes, those who have and those who do not. And Jesus is in the class of those who do not. So um, this is the way the divine slips in the back door, so to speak. And I think this image can be taken further. So if we say, okay, if, um, if Jesus is born of divine origins here by the wind of God and, and comes through the, the ordinary labors of, of human birth, how is that different than the birth of any child. You know, what does it tell us? You might say, if you're an Orthodox Christian, you might say, well, it tells us something specific about Jesus. Okay, well, what does it also tell us about the birth of every child? I mean, is, is the, the Spirit of God only involved at this moment in history? Or if you, if you, or if you take the, the entire biblical narrative, it says the same wind of God brings order out of chaos. That's the opening passage of Genesis. The Spirit of God hovers over the waters of chaos. And now the Spirit of God is hovering over the womb of chaos here. And that's it. Those, the, those, those are God's two actions in the world. No, we say, no, not only is that false, the Scriptures itself does not point that out. The wind of God, the Spirit of God, is deeply interwoven into all things. I think that's, that's the most mystical reading of the Hebrew Scriptures um, and of the, you could even say, of the entire Judeo-Christian tradition. Where does God leave off and ordinary reality um, begin? Well, that's not clear. Perhaps the seeds and threads of the divine are interwoven into all things, and the birth of every child is also the breath of God breathing into the world in that unique wild being 
once again. That's the kind of conclusion I come to hearing this. So this idea that um, what is in her of the Holy Spirit, what if we treated every birth that way, every child that comes into the world, in that, in that sense, what of the divine breath is now breathing in and out in the sacredness of life? How would that change how we view our fellow brothers and sisters, our neighbors, and even our enemies? You know, for Jesus to say, love your enemies, is totally radical and actually a bad idea. Unless we also recognize that something of the divine, of, of the divine breath, of the wind of God, is also uh, interwoven in the being of my enemy. You see how it begins to change how we think about the world and what we think about the world. Do you see how, how symbols are lure, lure us into the depths and kind of drop us off? There's no bottom to the kind of musing we could do just on this single image. So um, the other thing I might say is that it's interesting that the angel of the Lord here, which really means messenger in Hebrew, says that Jesus will have a mission, an aim, a purpose. And it will be to turn um, the people back from their sins, to save them. And um, that's quite a task. Yeah, and, how, and the question is, how might Jesus embody this task? And one of the things that, that I sort of get curious about here, okay, so if Jesus um, comes into the world with a certain aim, a certain um, bent, a certain proclivity, a certain symbolic calling, a certain sacred task, is that not true of every child as well? Is that not true of every human being? I mean, actually, actually that's, that's what the Greeks thought as well, that the soul chooses the time in which it is to be born because it has a sacred task to accomplish. And I think this idea will not leave humanity alone. I think it won't leave humanity alone because it's true. And the Christmas story reminds us of such. Ah, yes, there's one whose aim in the world turned the world upside down, which, which provokes us to think about what is mine to do in the world? What task am I aimed at? Um, maybe it's not to save people from their sins, but it's some version of something else. What is the sacred and archetypal image that I'm called to carry and be in the world? Or um, I might be called to join others in, might be a less uh, individualistic way of saying it. In other words, there might be many who are called into the kind of task that you're bent and aimed at. And once a year, we ought to be cleaning the lens and preparing the way of the divine to enter the world again, and also asking, what is mine to do? Because when the divine and the human touch here, they're given a task. So I want to say that again as if it's true right now. When the divine and human touch, a task is born. So if once a year you're cleaning yourself out, saying what's possible at the darkest moment of the year, what wants to enter is the question. And once that enters, what is asked? What wants to be born? What wants to grow? Where does the light want to roam around in from that point on, you could say? 
Um, and maybe just a, a couple of other sort of asides um, here. I think it's interesting that Joseph receives a dream. And um, only in the modern era have we fallen um, into amnesia when it comes to the power of dreams. Every ancient culture and every spirituality found a way of working with dreams or letting dreams work on them. And um, we spend a third of our life, you know, dreaming, something like that. And to just say, well, they're random firings of the brain is a major mistake, a major modern mistake in, in my view. And it takes a dream. It takes a dream to open up Joseph to change his mind on something very important. And why would a dream do that? Because every night when we go to sleep, the ego is not in charge. Nobody, nobody gets to decide ahead of time. Even if you're a lucid dreamer, you know, meaning sometimes you're aware that you're dreaming and you might be able to make this or that happen. That's a, you know, sometimes I have dreams where I'm able to do that. Maybe you've had the same experience. But by and large, when we go to sleep, we're not in charge. We don't get to cook up the perfect dream. Oh, I'd like to dream about, you know, fill in the blank. No, dreams come after us. They assault us with scenarios and anxieties and tensions and problems and sometimes successes and sometimes strange characters or always strange characters and strange symbols and, and so forth and so on because we could say it's putting pressure on our worldview. It's, it's the thing within within us, I think it's something like the soul that's sending up smoke signals saying, hey, I'm in here and um, I might have an aim and a direction and I'd like a say in your life. And sometimes it's the only way the ego will change its mind. The ego is our consciousness, who we think we are. And when we go to sleep, that thing takes um, a back seat. And that's what happens to Joseph. It takes a back seat. Suddenly he says, what I was so convinced of, I actually didn't know what I was talking about. And, and he, he, he takes the dream seriously enough, and not only does it change his life, but it change, changes the course of, of history, we could say. And just a line from Carl Jung, he says, um, let's not forget that God speaks primarily in dreams and visions. You know, let's not forget that God speaks primarily in dreams and visions. And our modern, sophisticated, scientific, you know, um, fact-based way of viewing the world says, ah, that's a bunch of crap. Yeah, well, then you miss out on the divine. And uh, let's not forget the birth narrative uh, unfolds with a dream right at the center. It's not the only dream, by the way. You should read the other Gospels, um, meaning Luke that mentions the birth narrative. Also, a dream is involved. Um, okay, so uh, maybe uh, one other point, and then I'll say something about the solstice. So very last uh, section here in the passage, uh, it says that Joseph did not consummate the marriage, meaning they didn't sleep together. And and I know right away, you know, the... we're. we're you know, the modern mind wants to work out, you know, is this really true? You know, um, did this really happen? And, and, but I'm, I'm inviting us to think, well, what does is, what is it symbolize here? And 
What I think it symbolizes has to do with the nature of preparation, that a certain amount of patience is required for the birth of the mystery. A certain amount of patience. You cannot make it happen. Here, to, uh, to quote James Finley, you cannot make the moment of oceanic oneness happen. You cannot make the moment of oceanic oneness happen. All you can do is offer the stance of least resistance. So that is, that's a quotation that has to do with posture. Patience, openness, humility, quiet, solitude, isolation, subtlety. These are important words in the preparation phase. These are important words. This is what it means, in a sense, to not consummate, just to wait it out. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. And this is the time of year where we are waiting. We are waiting for that moment when the darkest night of the year has its say. And by no power of our own, the mystery of life begins to turn itself toward light. And from this moment on, for the next year, and hopefully this is true of 2021, a little more light and a little more light and a little more light each day. But this, so there's a kind of patient waiting, which is, this is what I think that the solstice, in a sense, helps in, invite us into. The solstice means uh, when the sun stands still. And I love this sort of direct um, uh, definition because there's something about that moment. Like, um, sometimes in uh, wilderness programs, my own and other programs I've been on, uh, we'll, we'll send people out into the wild space for in, into nature um, to do a kind of evening and dark exercise. And there are a bunch of different kinds. I won't go into tremendous detail here. But one of them that I've done before and I did on my vision fast is try to stay alert enough for when the moment of darkness actually falls. Like, in other words, let the sun go down, wait through dark, until the moment of darkness comes. Try to stay alert enough for the moment of darkness. And I've done the same with the sunrise. What if I held vigil through the entire night, waiting for the moment when I would actually say, day is here. That is the mysterious time. Um, what the Celts called a thin place, where one world ends and another world is born. That's the same thing as, um, where does the divine and the human touch? Where does day or where does night end and day begin? Where does the year finally begin to give way to the light? So the invitation is what if we stayed alert enough for that moment with our hearts open and our souls open and our spirits open and our bodies open to the possibility of what might happen? That's the sort of invitation I hear um, in the solstice. So maybe you heard, I hope, a hint, a guess, a clue. 
these uh, little podcasts on Ad- Advent were meant to just help us hear the text again. And and my hope and aim is that you heard something that just stirred you in a certain way and um, called your attention um, back toward the ways of wisdom and back toward meaning and purpose. So, um, yeah, thanks for listening. I want to... Uh, Really thank my patron supporters on Patreon, um, and, and thank you too. I got a couple of new ones um, just in the last week or so, so really, really grateful. You make this podcast happen. You make it possible. I think about Patreon as, as a kind of virtual tip jar, and thank you very much for the tips and the ongoing tips. It really uh, makes a huge difference. It's why I have the mic that I'm talking into and the computer that I'm typing on and whatever. So um, I just want to say thank you. And uh, if you want some um, information about upcoming programs, kentdobson.com is the place to go. I will be offering a Lent Descent class, which this will be my third year offering Lent Descent. And I always change it a little bit, but it'll be a five or six week uh, Zoom course where we dive into um, the journey of transformation. And last year I used the book of Jonah as a model. I think I may do that again because that's also uh, the new book that I'm working on has that as a backdrop. So that's kind of the terrain we'll be we'll be moving in. And and I found and so have the participants that these online courses to be really really uh, powerful, surprisingly intimate and um, and conversational as much as it can be for an online format. So if that's something that interests you, be looking for that in the weeks to come. Um, and yeah, I will look forward to um, the next podcast. And I wish you a happy solstice and a Merry Christmas and a happy holidays. Holidays means holy days. Um, and may it be a sacred time. Peace. Peace.